I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah of Newton, Massachusetts, and this is TBA Now, a podcast featuring issues and concerns that affect our temple community and the people who make it an interesting, dynamic place to be. Everyone has stories to tell. This is the place to hear them. Her voice is immediately recognizable, clear, authoritative, intelligent. It is unmistakably Martha Biebinger, a respected journalist at WBUR. Martha will talk to us today about her latest beat, the vaccine, and what's it like to be a reporter in 2020. Hey, Martha Liebinger, <laughs> I have to say there was some moment years ago when having heard your voice uh, on WBUR, uh, I heard your voice um, in the hall here at the temple and I thought, oh my God, that's her. And how lucky I felt and feel that you're a member of this congregation because the level of journalism that you represent is always so compelling and so honest. And I'm just really thankful that you're here, first of all, here in the building to show up to do the podcast, but I'm just really happy you're part of this community. So welcome to TBA Now. I am so happy to be here. Thank you. You've had a, and continue to have a really interesting life. And I wanted to kind of start how you ended up at Temple Beth of Odah. When we moved to Boston in 2006, we came from a conservative congregation in Providence that I loved. It was very hard to leave. We thought about trying to go back and forth, but we had young kids at the time, and they needed to be in religious school, and that was just not tenable. So we shopped, and shopping for synagogues in Boston is really an adventure. I mean, there's so many options, and they're really very unique places in many ways. Um, what landed us here was you in part, you know, your sort of welcome, opening demeanor, and um, loved hearing you at the Bema, Susan, same, you know, the, the two of you as a team are just really formidable <laughs> when you look at the competition. And and I'll have to um, say also, this was very convenient for us. We live near Allendale um, Farm, and um, the kids were going to, there, there were people from some of the Brookline schools where the kids were. So it felt like it, we, we would have um, a fabric, you know, that sort of fit into the into our lives pretty easily here. I'm glad that worked out. I'm yeah. glad that, that you, you ended up here. A broader question is, I know that you were not born into a Jewish family. So I'm hoping you would share with us some sense of what led you to Judaism. Yeah, no, I grew up in a, um, a household that was Methodist initially. Um, my mother and, and two of my sisters eventually became fundamentalist Christians, but, but we grew up in, in this really solid Protestant household. And I went to church a lot. I mean, definitely every Sunday, and I was probably there another two or three times a week for various activities. It was a real, real fundamental to my early life. But I had a lot of friends who were Jewish, 
And when I would go to um, Shabbat dinners, I would just get so engrossed in the conversations. And when I would go for bar and bat mitzvahs, I, I, there was something that drew me. There was something really elemental that felt like this is part of who I am. So, and I actually have a memory of being much younger, maybe eight or nine on a playground and meeting a little girl who said, um, my name is Carla and I'm Jewish. And I said, oh yeah, me too. No idea where that comes from, but it's in the memory banks. So at around 14, I think I was a freshman in high school, I started going to conversion classes. I went with a friend from high school named Bea. We did the reading. We had the discussions. We were, it was mostly me and Bea and a group of um, Russian immigrants who were, I don't know, sort of brushing up on their English Judaism skills, I think. But anyway, it was great. And as I left home to go to college, I just sort of started identifying and practicing more with Judaism, you know, going to the Hillel at college, um, forming a Havara among friends. Um, and then I didn't actually convert. I'm sort of, I'm sort of, I'm a person driven by deadlines, as you might imagine, in my work. So I didn't actually convert until I gave birth to Eli. <laughs> So, um, had the mikvah experience then. Um, so my Beit Dean was just a was just a group of three friends who were rabbis, um, and we all just kind of had lunch. And they asked me a few questions, but I had known them as part of this this journey, this evolution for many years. So it didn't it didn't feel like um, it just felt like kind of a next step in the process. And then uh, you know we joined a synagogue in Providence, and now we're here. I don't imagine it's an easy conversation since you have now fundamentalist Christian relatives. Is that, does that become problematic in terms of where you're at religiously? No, it doesn't. It's wrapped up in so many uh, ways that were different, you know, uh, politically, socially. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a deep fundamental love. Well, I should say that one of my sisters and my mom have passed away, so it's, huh. it's only one... one <laughs> The lone standing fundamentalist in the family, <laughs> um, but she does have five kids. She brings she brings a lot of power to the conversation. You know, they still they live in Texas. I don't so I don't see a lot of them. We share a lot about the way we look at the world, the way we you know we try to be good people and take care of other people and be responsible. So the religious differences are significant, but they aren't they aren't a breaking point. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. How did you go from uh, a kid on the playground who just kind of said, I'm Jewish, that there was something going on there? Um, how do you end up from that moment on the playground uh, in, a, uh, in a studio with a microphone? Like, what, what is the voyage of your profession? I majored in semiotics and art in college. Semiotics is the study of symbols or signs. And I thought I would be an artist, but it was actually a very lonely journey. What medium were you? Uh... I started in sculpture. I moved into things that um, needed uh, elements of time and life and light. So I started working with video and film. That led me to a job at a TV station where I would make the money. That was just like a tech job at a TV station. And then I started doing more documentary film work. Um, but that was in the like 80s, early 90s when the equipment was very heavy and there was no internet. So if you didn't get on PBS, your film kind of didn't really go anywhere. 
And the ROI for me was just not working. So a friend said, why don't you um, try radio? And that's when I, that's when I got the internship at, at BUR and started. I didn't have any journalism training, really. You know, I mean, I was a reasonably smart person who was doing documentary work, but I really learned journalism on the job, and that seemed to work okay for me. It would seem to me that a background in semiotics would be a great background for a journalist. It's very analytical. Yeah, you definitely learn those sort of critical thinking skills, for sure. And what you see is not necessarily what you get, and vice versa. Yep. And over the years, you went from an intern to you know, a major personality in the, in the market on WBUR. And so what beats have you done, and where are you at now? I believe... Do you do a beat? I'm not quite sure what the verb is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's right. I mean, I, it's possible that my job description still says general assignment reporter. I'm not sure. That's what I got hired as. And what so, does that mean in terms of the world? That means of... you can be assigned anything on any day. Yes. Who assigns you? It varies depending on the size of your newsroom. BOR has grown significantly over the past 10 years or so. So now I have there's a health desk editor. And so I would work with that person and maybe somebody tangential in the newsroom. But there's a layer of editors, usually governed by an assignment manager, who figures out what needs to happen that day, that week, and then longer term. For a long time, I was doing whatever was coming along on a daily basis because I was working in some pretty small newsrooms. Then for a while, I was assigned, at, um, I was based at the State House. When you're at the State House in our market, it often means you're just doing general assignments. You're doing whatever is the hot legislation or the hot scandal or the hot issue of the day. I Because I had a background in health by that time and because I came at the moment when um, Governor Romney first proposed something that would become, we didn't call it Romney Care then, but what would eventually become Romney Care, uh, I started spending a lot of time on healthcare. And that has just pretty much continued. My, my, I have a more, much more specialized subbeats within health now, but I still do mostly healthcare. Doesn't it strike you as just extraordinary that it began with a Republican governor? and how it grew into what it is now and the kind of opposition that is regularly mounted against it. Yeah, there have been an astonishing number of um, changes over time. But, you know, Governor Romney's idea was that the free market could do it better than government. And that's that's a solid Republican idea, right? And so what he was, in, the, the impetus for the the whole change initially was a Medicaid waiver that the governor, the then governor Romney, wanted to move to incorporate more of the private sector in coverage of people who were low income. He used subsidies for those private companies to build and expand the number of people who had health insurance. It's a it's a very strong, strongly rooted Republican idea. The shift these days to thinking about anything that the government runs as, as just not tenable or, or something that uh, many Republicans want to support has, has eroded a lot of confidence in that. I think that the Romney idea, it was such a smart series of steps to really help the population that was neediest uh, to attain access to health care that was otherwise beyond their reach. And I find it sad that I don't hear now Senator Romney in Utah touting that he created this. 
Yeah, it cost him. A, it it was very um, challenging for him to navigate that space as a presidential candidate, and I think he just hasn't been willing to go back there. Your coverage of variety of issues relating to health, um, and that would surely bring us to the current state of affairs. So, did you start covering the coronavirus at the very beginning? Um, as far as what we understood to be the beginning, yes. I mean, I did not do uh, the first Biogen story, for example, in Boston. A, another colleague did. But it quickly became apparent that um, we needed to be in the hospitals understanding what was happening. And so I have a lot of contacts inside hospitals. And so I started trying to grasp the changes that were going to be happening there. And I think we pretty much kept up with it. But, you know, the governor issued the ban on elective care, for example, just about, it was March 15th, so, you know, not very far in. And that really just upended so many people's lives um, and started to have so many ripple effects in terms of layoffs and people shifting to different jobs and patients not sure where to go to get care. So for many weeks and probably months, it just felt like you were standing in a fire hose, you know, <laughs> like you could maybe catch a little cup of water going by and look at it and <laughs> tell people about it. But a lot of it was just, was just too much, too fast. And I know that, I know we missed a lot of stories and issues, but like many people who in the healthcare profession, we feel like we, we did the best we could. Yeah, I mean, with a yeah. story this size, how does one even, if you have three stories, one each one prescient, necessary to hear, looking into the future, what are the what are the factors that go into deciding what's what story to go with? You know, honestly, until about July, there wasn't even time to stop and give it that kind of thought. Hmm. It was just like you started making calls. Who answered the phone? You, you followed that one. So there were enough enough component stories that you would just follow the one that you get the most information on as quickly as possible. Yeah. When Governor Baker canceled elective surgeries procedures, did you think at that time, and do you think now that that was the right decision? Yeah, I don't think there was anything else. I mean, obviously what he's doing now is very different, but this is having had time to plan. What we know and have the ability to do now that we couldn't do then is to think regionally. So the state has created this plan that divides all of the hospitals and and kind of related healthcare entities into five different regions. And they talk daily and share resources. Hospitals didn't have the infrastructure at that time due to licensing rules and all kinds of things to share staff, for example, between hospitals. So that if one emergency room was overwhelmed, fine, you could deal with it. You know, hospitals did transfer kids, both Boston Medical Center and I think to some degree Mass General, to Children's Hospital. But they just did that on the fly. It wasn't systematized. And so there were, like, there were some issues with the, the continuity of care being um, transferred seamlessly. Now that's all set up so it can happen without really any disruptions. The governor had to use blunt tools, in my opinion, early on to just literally 
stop any circumstance in which you were increasing the risks of transmission. Now we know, for example, that it's not all the surfaces that everyone was touching. It's in the air. Without, without that knowledge, the only thing you could do was to just say, stop, <laughs> I think. I, you know, it, it, it's striking that um, looking at the statistics now, what's happening right now today, there are more people sick, more people that are dying, and uh, the state is not closed down. Um, in stark contrast to a situation, as you were describing, in March and April. If you would prognosticate, do you think that's inevitable? A, 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 a shut, a, do you think it's, a shutdown is going to happen? And B, how come it's an, it hasn't happened already? I listen to the governor's briefings pretty much every time he has them. And I can tell you what he um, describes as the rationale, which is that he has to balance the economic impact with the health risks and harms. And so he has, for example, prioritized keeping schools open, not that he's been that successful because there's a lot of pushback in individual communities, but he's prioritized that because the infection rates among younger kids in particular, the transmission rates are very low. So that setting is so important to the development of kids that it offsets the relatively low risk of those kids becoming spreaders of, of the virus. He is slowly, as you know right now, tightening restrictions on dining and other indoor spaces. So whether he's done enough, many doctors would say no, but their lens is probably not as broad as his in thinking about the impact of more restaurant closures and job losses, more gym closures and job losses. I don't think I have the perspective right now to be able to say on balance whether the calculations he's making all seem accurate. You could hear disputing claims on both sides right now. But I think the thing that I do find easier to critique is the inability of um, many people to do the things that are that are still that are smart that we need to be doing and you know it's it's in my own family like my youngest kid flew to florida the week before christmas he's 20 i couldn't stop him i thought it was a bad idea but there's so much restlessness in many of our young people that i wonder again on balance in my life was that maybe it was better for him to just maybe maybe he's preserving his sanity by getting out. But what, you know, what risk did he carry in doing that? I don't know. These calculations get, get very complicated. Um, I would agree with you. I, I, I think, I don't know about you. I, I, I sense often that someone says, should we let the grandkids come over? They've been in school, but they've been out of school since school vacation. They're young. They're around their parents who are not socializing, who are getting tested. Statistically, it seems like a very low risk, but how do you make the considerations? And, and there's no, I would pay a million dollars. I would get some friends and I would, we'd all pass the hat. If someone could just give me a list of consider, just here's the list, check four out of the six and you do it. Or four, it, it, it makes this period we're living in now just devastatingly difficult. And I'm, I don't have kids in my home. And I think for parents right now, it must be just every day carries existential decisions that you're never sure 
are being made with any kind of clarity. Yeah, definitely. I don't know if you have seen um, Lena Wen, Dr. Lena Wen, who used to be the health commissioner in Baltimore. She's has, she has this thing she calls a risk budget. So you, well, I'm looking that up. Yeah. So you, you decide um, what you're willing, you know, what's most important to you. And, 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 there, and you kind of assign the risky behaviors you're willing to take based on that. But, but you very consciously, if you decide to see the grandkids, <clears throat> maybe you don't leave the house for any other reason that week. I don't know what the, your budget would look like, but it would mean that you're not going to do um, grocery shopping or other things where maybe there's very minimal risk, but you've, you've had your share uh-huh. for the week. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe it'd be too scary to do that. I don't know. Well, <laughs> I don't know. There's there's nothing that is isn't without fear. I think right now. Right. Yeah. Do you think it likely that by the end of January we'll have shut down to the previous uh, response degree? I think it's going to depend on um, three or four things. It will depend on whether we see a post-holiday surge, which we did see after Thanksgiving. You know, cases were up about 75% in the two weeks after Thanksgiving. Was it that much? Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Yep. Uh, And it was either cases or hospitalizations. I'm I'm seeing the graph from one of the governor's presentations. But there was a significant bump in impact. And if that were to happen, and that, that slowed a little bit in these last two weeks of December, but we're not back to October levels. So if we see that surge on, another surge on top of that in January, then the hospitals are, are really going to be in serious shape. Many of them are, many, you know, our ICU capacity across the state right now is like about 15%. But, you know, that fluctuates on a daily basis. So there are times when some ICUs in, in Boston have been full in the past week or so. So you can't, you can't get to the point where you don't have ICU capacity, right? The government right. Would, have to do, would have to do something different. But at the same time that we have these, these risks ahead, we are starting to vaccinate people. There, there's a sense that the risk inside hospitals is lowering because the people who need to be there to care for us when we go in as patients will have a new level of protection that's that they have huge, That's a huge, that's a huge new uh, piece of this puzzle. Yeah. So if, I, I mean, I think the, the governor's, one of his main objectives is to be sure that the hospitals can remain viable. If the hospitals can't remain viable, then he has to do more on the lower end of things to, to stop people moving around so much and gathering so much in society. But if we don't see that surge post-holidays, and we see this, you know, by um, the middle of January, we will have a, a, a good number of healthcare workers who will have had their second dose of either Pfizer or Moderna's vaccines. Mm. Um, so we will have people who will have full protection themselves. You know, I want to get more to the vaccine in a second, but as you were describing the issue, you know, often... Um, people will say, oh, you know, we're so lucky to live in the Boston area because of the hospital care. And it could be any less clear than right now. Listening to stories about rural hospitals where staffing is absolutely a catastrophe. They literally can't find enough people to care for the number of patients they're getting. And 
the desperation. Some governors have been interviewed, and um, and it, it's it's really it must be particularly terrifying for those parts of the country where they thought, I guess, when the first wave came through, and it was you know it's all those city people, you know, and not clearly it's it's not clearly it's spread everywhere, and to have the kind of care that we have in this area is um, priceless. And I also wondered, you know, what's going to happen in those places, Montana and, and Idaho and the, the Dakotas, states out there that are, I think, really struggling. What, what are they going to do? So I know that that's a, an issue that um, Biden's transition team on the coronavirus is, is taking a closer look at. Um, the early research has shown that the death rates are higher in rural areas for, for all of those reasons that you just mentioned. The, there's all kinds of options on the table, you know, including deploying people more so to rural areas. Um, not just, I mean, staff is the big issue now. It's not even equipment so much. It's just, it's just staff. Right. Um, so, I mean, this is a this is changing topics a bit, but I think there's the possibility of licensing people, med students or nursing students, who may not be quite ready yet to to start to do some more field work just on an emergency basis. It's not a it's not a whole lot of wiggle room here, but right. um, there are a few there are a few options. It's astonishing to watch how so many professions, how many. Areas of all areas of life are affected by COVID, and what they transform into from that struggle to make do during this time. And I wonder if you have any thoughts of about the medical field and how, just as you were describing with med students, nursing students, how it might how it might change in the I don't know after the immediate uh, COVID pandemic eases? Well, the big shift is going to be telemedicine. I think we've just all learned the capacity um, there is much better than uh, anyone was was willing to try before the pandemic. And when I say capacity, I don't just mean, you know, what you can do um, with a tablet, but um, in some ways how it improves care. So, Mental health visits, for example, have really kept pace during the pandemic in a way that many other parts of the healthcare system haven't. And it's so, it makes so much sense. You, it's just easier to pick up the phone or open the Zoom platform and do have an appointment from your desk or from your couch at home than to get in the car and drive someplace. That there's going to be a, there's going to be a real enhanced quality of care from learning how we can use mm. telemedicine more effectively. You know, some economists worry there's a real downside there because maybe we'll just use care more often in ways that perhaps we don't always need to, and that volume increase will increase healthcare costs overall. But um, I think the the shift to telemedicine is really going to be fabulous particularly in the behavioral health, and there I mean the addiction care treatment um, experience as well. <laughs> the shifts inside hospitals, I, it's, they're, it's, they're harder to predict because 
that ban on elective care that we talked about earlier was happening all across the country. And in many ways, it highlighted ways that people weren't getting care they may not have needed anyway. Hmm. We saw for sure some delayed care lead to delayed harms. But there, are, there is some research that shows we also saw people not going in for things that they didn't need with no bad outcomes. So what, how that's all going to shake out so that we get closer to people getting the care they need when they need it, it's going to be very interesting. I don't know. There's probably a million other changes that are in the works that I'm not thinking of yet. But No, I, even, look, I think even your uh, acknowledgement of telehealth and, and how revolutionary uh, that is, I think it was moving before COVID, but I think you were, there were a lot of people that were very skeptical mm -hmm. about it. And as you're suggesting, in many different aspects of healthcare, it's proven to be highly effective with all kinds of opportunities in the future. There's another thing that, that I think is worth watching, which is more hospital care at home. You may have noticed that um, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Service, they set the rules for Medicare and Medicaid, obviously. Um, Medicare now, there's a, there was an emergency waiver during COVID so that they would pay for basically hospital-level care at home. And Medicare often sort of sets the direction for change in this country. And if we start moving more care out of hospitals into home-based settings, that, that could be a really huge shift. Isn't it, isn't it always a rule of thumb that no one ever seems to follow that if care can be provided in the home, it ends up being both for the, that person's long-term health as well as for the economic issues, that it's just better for everyone all around. Yeah, generally. But hospitals are big buildings, and their, um, <laughs> their bills don't shift that much. If there's nobody right. in a room, they still have to you know, pay the cost of keeping that room lit and he heated and all that sort of stuff. So it's going to be very challenging. It is. So you know, speaking of challenging, we have this uh, vaccine that is certainly the great you know, that great bright light shining down the road piece. And uh, I want to know, Martha, do you know who calls you up to say it's your turn? How, how do we know when it's our turn to get a vaccination? We don't know yet. We know what category, I mean, I, I can tell each of you in the room what category you would be in, but how you're going to get the alert, where you'll go, what shot you'll get, it's all a moving target. So I'm relieved to know that I don't know that no one else knows. I didn't miss that email. No, it hasn't. It hasn't been established at all. I mean, each. So even phase one of the vaccine rollout in Massachusetts, which is now through sometime in February, and has six subparts. <laughs> we are now in subpart two, which is the nursing homes. We don't have the details for subpart three, which probably starts in the next week or two. That's how much of a work in progress it is. Wh whose office does that come out of? Um, Mary Lou Sutter, Secretary of Health and Human Services. But, you know, she, she now also oversees the command center, which is this unique body created to kind of oversee issues related to the pandemic. 
Um, she has a vaccine advisory group that's giving her some guidance, but the logistics, the operations, it all really comes out of that command center that, that she heads. My guess is they don't sleep much over there. No, I doubt it. Are you struck by just how extraordinary it is that they were able to pull this vaccine together at all? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. There's n nobody who doesn't just kind of like whose jaw doesn't hit the floor if you really if you really stop and think about it. And and the fact that that, that uh, it seems to be effective at preventing the disease is just so it's just astonishing. It's good that we're focused on two that are so effective off the bat, Moderna and Pfizer. AstraZeneca does not right now appear to be quite as effective. So I think we're going to hit some tricky ethical issues when vaccines that are work less well than Pfizer and Moderna are out there. I mean, I think the general public health rule is that you just get what you get and you take it because it's really great to have a vaccine. But I worry about whether our collective goodwill will hold together when um, there starts to be a fight over when, what, who, and where in terms of the vaccines. Yes, you were talking about the restlessness of people in general and uh, the notion that people will find that acceptable to wait longer or that they're not going to get uh, the Pfizer or, or Moderna is, it's scary, really. I mean, it, it cues into about 100 different uh, science fiction uh, <laughs> novels and short stories that I've read. Right. Martha, I, I think it would be fair to say that, um, shifting gears here, it would be fair to say that being a journalist uh, over the past four years uh, has been a different experience than in the years before. And I'm curious, and, and you know, I always try, I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm objective about it, but I don't get on a high horse about this, but um, it is just true in public record that in, on February 17th, 2017, the president uh, proclaimed that the press was the enemy of the people. So when the president spoke those words for the first time, and he, since that point, pretty much said it, if not daily, certainly weekly, biweekly, it, was, it, was, it became a trope in what was often heard at rallies. As a journalist, when you heard those words for the first time, did you have any particular reaction? I was shocked, for sure. I think, um, you know, we knew that uh, he often felt assaulted and um, on the defensive around members of the media, but using those words was a, was a um, step beyond the pale. It felt like just stunning, really, that, that any leader in this country would say that. This, this though, is, <laughs> it's another way that working in Massachusetts is such a um, out-of-body experience in some ways, given the reality of the rest of the country. We live in such a little bubble that I would hear those words, and yet I, they, they never felt true to me. I never have never worried about being on the streets and saying I'm a reporter in Massachusetts. I've never gotten um, hate mail like some of my colleagues in other parts of the country get. I've never questioned whether I could continue to do my job. Um, effectively. It's, it's, the reality that I live and work in here in Massachusetts 
is just so different than the reality that he, President Trump was speaking to and the kind of energy that he was fomenting in other parts of the country. I didn't feel it here. So there was also a weird disconnect between thinking like, how can I not understand the whole part of the country that he's talking to and that those words resonate with? So there was both shock and there was this kind of very deeply unsettling feeling about whether I understood my country, you know, whether I felt like grounded here. I feel grounded in Massachusetts, but does Massachusetts represent the United States? Is it, does, is it even a piece of that puzzle? I don't know. Sometimes that, that feels very uh, disconcerting. When you, as a professional, look at the coverage of COVID over since, well, in a way, I guess, since the Wuhan uh, outbreak began, what grade would you give it? The media, and maybe you can cut it between the U.S. Uh, or worldwide, or uh, U.S. It's in. It's a maybe a, a B plus or sorry, B or B minus. I would say. I think it's been a little bit too on the fly. I think that you know we hadn't had the experience of covering a global event in ways that allowed us to be as smart about that as we could, offer as much clear, concise explanations, maybe not chase every new development, which we did because we weren't sure which one was leading to something productive. You know, I'm thinking about the hydroxychloroquine mm. example. Um, I think we spent quite a lot of time on that, even when it was pretty clear that it wasn't going to be a useful therapy. And in part, that was driven by the president keeping it in the um, public discourse. But at, at a point, you have to just stop and say, like, we're just not going to pay attention to that even anymore, even though he's talking about it. And, you know, there are some other... There are some other examples like that, but it combines your last two questions in a way uh, with the question of how much do you let a leader who is not offering clear, useful information drive an agenda? And I think we continued to do that, continued to allow the president standing at the podium during those briefings that were really not informational at all, you know, continued to be the headlines of the day when um, there probably was more useful information that we should have been focusing on. I look forward to reading whoever will write the history of this period and how the different stories of the different major events merge together and how one creates the disequilibrium in the system that then plays back one against the other until it feels like you're on a rocking ship constantly without a, any uh, sense of stability or, or, or searching for what, what is the point uh, at which one might find any kind of stability, any kind of sense of truth and balance. It's been a very difficult thing in that way to, to feel a sense of confidence in the world moving forward. And I think that one of the things that we found here is that, for instance, the attendance at Friday night services virtually is 
so much higher uh, than typically it is previous when we were in person. And I know this is reflected in various religious uh, institutions throughout the country. I wonder if there are, there are there any other places that you know of where there has been uh, in a search for a place of, of peace and balance. Martha, do you think that we're going to find more balance in the next couple of years? Well, I wanted to, I'm going to roll back just for about 10 seconds there to your question, but whether there are other places. Yeah. I would really like to see the numbers on virtual AA meetings, for example, because while some people really miss the in-person connection that they get from that experience during recovery, I also know many people who are much more likely to just hop on a uh, call, and it's so much easier to fit in a meeting when you've got other stuff going on in your day because it's available there right there on your phone or on your computer. Unfortunately, I don't, I don't have a grasp yet on who virtual works for and who it doesn't, really. But I know that the availability of the services, as you suggested, or the meetings or the support groups, that's, it's really helping a lot of people um, and in rural parts of the country, even more so, as we were as we were talking about a little bit earlier. Between a change of administration, uh, the success of the vaccine, what would you hope we might find happening in this country in the next couple of years? Well, connection is such a big one. I mean, we have to we have to find ways to close some of the divides that have only gotten wider in the past few years. I think there are issues around which that might happen. Like I'm hopeful that that'll happen around climate change, for example. I'm hopeful that that will happen around race relations. I'm hopeful that that will happen around maybe some of the changes in healthcare that, that will be coming. But it could certainly go the other way, too. I'm worried about the divide that might be created around who's vaccinated and who's not, for example. Uh, I would rather not see that solidified in rules, like you have to have your vaccination card to get on an airplane. I'd rather not see, for social reasons, I'd rather not see that. For public health reasons, maybe that is a good idea. It's, it's, it gets very, um, there, there are going to be a lot of uh, kind of minefields we're going to have to navigate, I think, to get to that place that you're asking about where things are more stable. I think we can certainly see what that might look like, but I, I, I'm not sure I can see the clear paths to getting there. I think because this period has been so deeply disruptive in virtually every aspect of our lives, I know that there's this almost utopian thought that goes, oh, you know, 2020, almost over, you know, can't wait for that new year, as if the calendar clicks and suddenly you know, we're in the clear. Uh, we're not going in the Wizard of Oz from black and white to color. And I, 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 I think that there is this uh, deep kind of naive sense that it will be so. But I think, uh, I think you're absolutely right. There are so many aspects that we'll need to consider that are going to be problematic. It's going to require enormous patience. And I don't know how good our country is at being patient. Uh, for anything. Martha, it has been such a pleasure to talk to you. 
I'm so glad that we could share uh, your thoughts with our TBA Now audience. And I always look forward to hearing you uh, when you have a story on BUR. I'm always so proud when I hear your name. And uh, I think today's conversation uh, clearly shows why that is so. So um, thank you so very much for being with us today. Well, thank you to you and the congregation for being such a critical part of my like safety and support net. It's really meant a lot. Thank you. Thanks for listening to TBA Now. We want you to subscribe. Help us grow this bigger and better. Let us know what you think. Any suggestions, any thoughts for who we should talk to? We are all ears. You can access us by the website, bethavodah.org, or find us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.